Well, hello, everyone. This is, in fact, Pentecost today. And that uh, it's the time even for Reformed and Baptists to, biblically speaking, be get Pentecostal. So, hallelujah. Amen, right? (laughs) So today is Pentecost. So the text um, was read for us earlier, chapter 2, verses 1 through 21 of Acts. But this is um, a a sermon in which I will be here, there, and everywhere. I always like to warn everyone. I'm not going to slow down, uh, but if you listen carefully, I will say Bible verses. And if you want to see a copy of the sermon, this is probably one uh, that you might want to. I, I will send a copy to anyone who wants it. Uh, if you can't write that fast, there's that many verses. Um, but we're going to be considering uh, the, the fire of baptism, the Holy Spirit, and who he is, and what he does, and, and what he's doing even now in us and through us in this world. So before we do that, before we consider who is referred to as the forgotten God, right? we, we, we all remember the Father and remember the Son, but the Spirit is a little mysterious to us. So before we consider him and his ministry, let's pray to the Lord our God. Father, we thank you for Pentecost. We thank you, Lord, for sending your spirit, for dwelling in your people, for setting us ablaze, Lord, that we might purify and forge this world in the image of your Son, in whose name we pray, and amen. Now, Pentecost is a sort of a secondary um, feast day in the, in the life of the church, but it has significance both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And sometimes when you go back and you look at what, what Pentecost was uh, before the coming of the Spirit, it can be helpful. Pentecost is a Greek name for a festival known in the Old Testament as the Feast of Weeks. That's a funny name. The, I, I love our Jewish brothers, but back in the day they were not very good at naming holidays. The Feast of Weeks. It's recorded in Leviticus 23.15 and Deuteronomy 16.9. Now, the Greek word means 50, and it refers to the 50 days that have elapsed since the wave offering of the Passover. Now, that that in itself I'm not going to get into. The wave offering of the Passover is literally a chunk of meat they hold in the air and wave around. Uh, And that, again, sounds silly, but not sillier than singing at a a wall. Um, (laughs) But if you look into that, it, it is quite significant. It's quite significant. The wave offering. Now, that was 50 days ago in the Jewish calendar. The Feast of Weeks also commemorated the end of the grain harvest. So it's been 50 days since they waved the offering of Passover in the air, and it, has been, it, it also commemorates the end of the grain harvest. So think about that. The harvest is in. The harvest is in. Now, most interesting, however, is it the significance that Pentecost takes in the administration of the Lord Jesus. It says in Joel chapter 2, verse 28, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. This was a promise to the people once the Messiah comes, once he is here afterward, the, the spirit of God would be poured out. Now, how they understood this, we, we will come to consider. Okay? In the Old Testament, the Spirit occasionally comes on somebody for a short period of time to accomplish a specific task and does not remain with people, generally speaking. And so in Joel chapter 2, verse 28, I am sure that they assumed that when the, the, the Lord 
came, the Messiah came, that there would be some outpouring of the Spirit to accomplish his, his kingdom. Remember, and again, they're waiting for a kingdom, as we talked about before on Ascension Day. So it, it probably, they probably assumed that this was going to be a one-off. Right? The Spirit will come, and he'll come on the, Lord, on the Lord Messiah, and he will accomplish whatever it is he's going to accomplish, and then that will be that. But the coming of the Spirit on Pentecost in the New Testament it, it is actually what establishes the church. And, and, and the continuity between the, the assembly of God in the Old Testament and the church in the New, Old Israel and New Israel, this, this is something that I think is very hard for evangelicals who, who make an idolatry, uh, idolatrous relationship out of Israel, the nation in the Middle East. We think that somehow there is some separate Israel from us. But the church is Israel. Right? That we are the descendants of Abraham. We, the Christians, are descendants of the patriarchs and Job and David. They are our fathers, not theirs. We are the new Israel. And, and, and what demonstrates this is that the Spirit of God has come and descended upon us and remains. He remains. And that is what Pentecost becomes. It becomes this day in which the church is born. The church comes into its inheritance. The church is given its mission. The church is given the power to fulfill its mission. Now, the only reference to the actual events of Pentecost, it's only one place in Acts chapter 2, that's the only place in which it is recorded. There's a great deal that's said about the Spirit, but not much is actually said about the event after it occurs. Pentecost is reminiscent of the Last Supper. In both scenes, the disciples are together in a house in an upper room, at the Last Supper, the disciples witness the end of the Messiah's earthly ministry as he asks them to remember him after his death. If you consider the upper room discourse as recorded in John, the entire speech between chapter 12 and 17 is given in the upper room in which the Lord Jesus speaks a great deal about the coming of the Spirit. So 50 or so days later, they're in another upper room in which those things that were said in the upper room discourse are going to now occur. There's a connection here between these upper rooms. The scene of the disciples in a room at Pentecost is typological. It bookends the beginning of the, earthly, uh, the Holy Spirit's work in the church with the conclusion of Christ's earthly ministry in the upper room. So Christ finishes work in an upper room, and the Spirit begins his work in an upper room. That, that, that is supposed to be obvious to us. This is why if you ever read Luke's, the gospel according to Luke, you should always immediately read Acts. If you read Acts, don't read it without reading Luke first. This is my admonition to you. Always read them in tandem. That's how they're meant to be read. And, and we miss a great deal because we're doing our gospel readings, and we go from Mark, and then you know, we read Ephesians, and then we hit Luke, and then you go on and read Romans. But that's not how it's supposed to be done. I think we miss a lot, and we don't know a lot because we read it incorrectly. Now, the wind and fire imagery of Pentecost reverberates richly throughout Old and New Testaments. It echoes backwards, or, or it recalls echoes from the past, and, and it echoes forward in time. It's a big deal, essentially. The wind at Pentecost was rushing. It was mighty. It indicates a powerful wind that did not extinguish the tons of fire. The fire is so ferocious that the wind does not put it out. Now, I was recently on a beach, and we thought, you know what we're going to do is we're going to have a beach fire. And I always forget one thing that occurs on a beach that does not happen in my backyard, and that is an extreme amount of wind. And you can light a big pile of wood, and you will watch it disappear. 
because the wind is feeding it so quickly that it, it burns very brightly, very quickly, and goes out. Now, this fire that came down out of heaven is being fed by this wind, but it doesn't go out. The wind is what's feeding it. Right? These two things together are very important, the wind and the, and the fire. Just like it's reminiscent of the burning bush. If you remember the burning bush, with bush that was on fire but was not consumed by the fire. This is an interesting thing here. This fire is being fed by the wind, but the wind doesn't put it out. A strong wind is typological. It means God's judgment. So the, the Holy Spirit coming on you in fire is a judgment upon you. And I think that we don't understand what that means. It's a severe judgment upon you. Right? The fire comes down out of heaven, and what does it do? It consumes things. Exodus chapter 10, verse 13. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The east wind had brought the judgment. The wind brings the judgment of the fire upon us. God says in Psalm 1842, I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. The wind from heaven is not, <laughs> is not a summer breeze that cools the cheeks. It is judgment. More significant than the wind as power is wind as life in the Old Testament. Job chapter 12, verse 10. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. So this wind is not just judgment, it's life. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is called typology. This, when you're reading the, the, the Bible and it mentions something like wind, you ought to, right, if you want to go further up and further in, stop and consider what wind out of heaven might mean. And you go back and you look in the Old Testament, you're like, you know what? When this wind shows up, it's not always good. It's judgment. When this wind comes, you know what it is? It, it's life. Now, how do you reconcile those two things? The wind is the spirit in the New Testament. It says in John 3, 8, the Lord Jesus himself says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. The spirit comes, and it is judgment. The spirit comes, this wind comes, and it is life. This wind comes, and it comes where it where, wherever it wants to come from, and goes wherever it wants to go. Now, who wants this wind? Would you like to receive this wind, as it's described at this point? Because we talk about the Holy Spirit like he's just some friend of ours, like he's this rag doll that just sort of gets tossed around, right? He passes from the Father to the Son, to the Son to the Father, to the Father and the Son to the people, and it's just this thing. But it is a wind of judgment. It is a wind of life. And it does what it wants. Now, who wants some? <laughs> well, you have some. <laughs> we have to consider who it is that's dwelling inside of us. Now, just as the first Adam received the breath of physical life in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, so the second Adam also breathes on his body and gives it life. John chapter 20, verse 22. And when Jesus had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. It's his breath. It's his breath on our face. And it is judgment, and it is life, and it does what it wants. The idea of both judgment of sinfulness and the influx of spiritual life accomplished by the Holy Spirit is certainly implicit in the winds of Pentecost. 
fire, that other image of Pentecost, right? If you weren't terrified yet, let's now turn to the fire. The fire is associated in the Old Testament with the presence of God and his holiness, his perfection, his godness. Exodus 24, 17. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And they said, Moses, you know what? How about you go? How about you go up there? Because if we even touch this mountain, we're going to die. They were terrified of of the fire. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 17. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The fire from heaven does what? It burns thorns. What are the thorns? Well, let's think back to Adam and his curse. The fire comes, and it consumes, and it leaves no more thorns. It it devours all the thorns. It, it, It purifies. It cleanses. It destroys. The fire that comes down out of heaven to rest upon you, to rest in your heart, is a destroying fire. And it destroys... Because it puts something else there, right? It it takes away so that it might give. It takes so that it might give life. Throughout the New Testament, fire is associated with the presence of God and the purification that he can effect in the human life. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 8. Since indeed God considers it just to repay the affliction, those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. If you do not know him, if you know him and reject him, the fire will come down out of heaven and consume you. Now, who wants this fire living in their heart? (laughs) Any takers? Well, you have it. You have it. Fire is identified with Christ himself. Revelation 1, 13 through 14. And in the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And he gazes upon you. Right? What is it like, what is it like when that gaze looks upon you? Does that fire that comes out of his eyes consume anything? This association naturally underlines the Pentecost gift of the Holy Spirit who would teach the disciples the things of Christ according to John 16, 14. This is where our systematic theology needs to go back into the Bible and learn something. The Spirit gives life only because he takes away everything else. All the death, all the sin, all the shame, everything that's going on in you that is not going to go with you into heaven is going to be burned up. It's a mighty wind that that blows away all the chaff, and and, and what remains is life, right? It's not like the the Holy Spirit is not a fan that we went down to Costco and purchased and that we plug in in the corner of the room, and you can sort of feel it. You're like, it's there. It's kind of cooling me off just a little. That's not what he is. He is a consuming fire. He is a mighty wind, and he has come to rest upon us. Now, the Pentecost narrative concludes with the death of 3,000 people. And and this is where we need to come to understand what in the world we're talking about when we're talking about God. He slays 3,000 people. Now, what what do you mean by that? 
Well, 3,000 people are converted. 3,000 people come through the fires of baptism and, and, and die in their self and, be, and, and are born again that very day. He slays 3,000 people. Why? Because he is a consuming fire. <laughs> and all those people who are around the upper room where, where the Spirit descends, those men who receive the Spirit go out and they speak, and what happens is the fire spreads and starts burning up everyone it touches, like a forest fire. And it slays and consumes anything that is ungodly that it touches. I don't think we do ourselves a service by simply talking about what remains afterwards. I think what we have to think about is the warlike language here, the consuming and judgmental language here, and talk about what it is that he takes away. What does he destroy? How does he destroy it? Do you want a spirit that comes and and comes into your heart and is so powerful that you can go out and kill 3,000 people just by preaching? The church comes, and what was there doesn't remain. Something new takes its place, and it, it doesn't take its place by flipping a switch. It takes its place by burning down what was there. Now let's go back, because I've literally begun with the end. And I hope that you're as, as confused in one sense as I am. And I hope you're a little frightened. But let's go back and talk about what is going on here and how it came to pass and what it means for us. John the Baptist announced, he told everyone, listen, if, you're gonna, if you want the Messiah, you, there is something very important that you have to understand about what he's going to do. Because everybody thinks the guy eating bugs who's calling everyone a bag of vipers is a little intense. But there's one coming after him who's even more intense. Luke 3.16, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This expression is a hindiatus, a figure of speech in which, you're welcome, Laura in which two related nouns or verbs are used to communicate a single idea. You double up here in order to really press, press in the idea. As when they say signs and wonders. What's the difference between the signs and wonders? Nothing. But they're, they're putting the two words together so that you understand something quite remarkable is happening. Spirit and fire implies a deluge. It, in, it finds precedent in Jewish texts which allude to the judgment that will accompany the, re, the recreative or reforging activity of the Messiah. What's he going to do? He's going to take away everything that is and put something new there. And we think that's sweet Jesus going around with his little finger, digging little holes in the dirt and putting little seeds in. Oh, look at him. He's just spreading his will garden. But that's not how the Old Testament describes when Jesus comes. When the Messiah comes, he burns everything to the ground. And by doing so, right, by shaking the earth, those things that are eternal will remain. By purifying and burning this entire world, he's able to then hammer and recreate something glorious, something beautiful, something that will uh, be eternal, Fire is, an, is appropriate for a Messiah who would not be entirely gentle, but would testify to the coming judgment of God on an unrepentant Israel who would himself undergo a frightful deluge of judgment on the cross. 
John was looking for the coming of one who would baptize in spirit and fire. The context makes it clear that the fire in that phrase denotes judgment, a judgment that would presumably purify the penitent as well as destroy the impenitent. Isaiah 4.4, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the blood stains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Matthew 3.10, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Mark 9.49, for everyone will be salted with fire. When Jesus says, be salty, right? We imagine him there with his little bucket of salt, and he just takes out and sprinkles. You're going to be salted with fire. Salted with fire. Jesus echoes John the Baptist's conviction that a fiery purification was necessary and clearly picked up the Baptist's prediction, referring to baptism's connection to his own death. Luke 12, 49 through 50. This is what the Lord Jesus said. Now you tell me if this sounds, right, like the Lord Jesus that's preached in a lot of churches today, even ours at times. Luke 12, 49 through 50. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that, that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And what he does is he takes you and he baptizes you with that, with that fire, with that intensity, with that purifying, remaking fire. He's forging you. Now, how do you forge something? Well, you take some metal and you stick it in really hot fire until all the impurities burn away, and then you take it out of the fire and stick it on metal and hammer it until it's the shape that you want. Now, does anyone want that spirit? You have that spirit. The problem isn't, <laughs> the problem is that we don't know who dwells in us. We talk about him like he's a fluffy bunny. We talk about him like he's just this butterfly flo- floating around, and isn't he so cute? <laughs> I wish it was already kindled. There's Jesus. I wish the fire was already burning, but I have some work to do before I can light it on fire. That thought is matched by the Apostle Paul, who says in Romans 6, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? It can be said that John's expectation of a purging baptism of fire for the penitent is most nearly fulfilled in the believers being united with Christ, in his death and sharing in his sufferings. Only in, what, in that way does one come to share fully in Christ's risen glory. How? Through death, through martyrdom. What, what every Christian goes through is where we are, by the Spirit, dragged up to the stake of the cross, tied to it, and burned. That's what's happened. All those things that had prevented you in Adam from coming to the Lord Jesus are not just brushed off. They're burned away. They're blown away by a mighty wind. Leaving this world for heaven is and ought to be painful. When, when you see what's, right, you see your own desire, you see, you see that thing that you want, and this is the gift I'm going to give myself, that needs to die. And that is anything but painless. 
and we act like we're laying on a couch talking to a therapist. Philippians 3, chapter, or chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Here's myself, take it all. Burn it away. Take away everything that displeases you. Take away everything that I want that you don't want. Take everything from me so that by any means possible, whatever it costs me, Bring me into heaven with you. That's the prayer of a penitent. That's the prayer of a person who, who all the impurities are being burned away. Malachi chapter 3, verse 2 through 3. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. You are his bride. He is purifying you. That's what it says, right? That's what Paul says. Love your wife as Christ loved the church, purifies her with the washing of the word. And and we think that it's a super soaker that he's mixed in a little dawn with. He's going to just spray us off a little. But no, what he does is burn away everything that is displeasing to him. The first work which Christ does after he sits at the right hand of the Father is to send the Holy Spirit, fulfilling the promise of this baptism of fire. The ascension of Christ has its necessary consequence And the proof of its reality is the descent of the Holy Spirit. He ascends that the Spirit may descend. And what is the Spirit going to do? He's going to burn, burn away everything that is impure, that heaven and earth may be united forever. And we, after now that he has descended, in him ascend back to where Jesus is. That's the plan. And anything that can't go into heaven permanently is going to be burned up and blown away. Now, Pentecost was a unique event. This is very difficult for us to, cons- to consider what happened and-, and why so many people are looking still for some sort of baptism fire in their own life. When am I going to get that burning in the bosom? And what we don't understand is covenants, and I'm not going to get into it now because that's what I'm going to do in the summer. But the spirit that descends on Pentecost is a one-time event, and what happens as, as, as the generations roll on is that there's this, bla- this blaze that was started that's spreading over the whole earth, and it's consuming people as it goes. There's not some spirit moment where it descends out of heaven and you actually see a little flame of fire. What it is is you're picked up and you're thrown into the fire that's already blazing. You're brought into the blaze. Again, if you've ever been, you're sitting there in a fire and the fire's burning and you're like, oh, you know, this stuff's starting to burn away and you take more logs and you add to it. What happens? The fire keeps going. It keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And in, the more fuel you put on, the hotter it gets and the more it consumes. Steve was a firefighter. He'd tell you, right? If you, it, the, the fire is burning. If it keeps getting fuel, both air and things to burn, what will happen? It will continue to burn and continue to burn and get hotter and hotter and hotter. And that's what's going on. You're part of a blaze that's purifying the earth. You're part of a blaze in which the Lord has plunged the earth so that he can hammer out something new for himself. 
And so now, now let's listen to this again. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. With the rushing wind that sweeps through the house at Pentecost, the fire of heaven descends and rests on the body of believers. Both wind and fire are common features of the theophanies that that we well know from the Old Testament. 2 Samuel 22.16, Then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were laid bare, at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. Exodus 19.18, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord has descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. This is what's come and descended and remained on us. This presence the God with us isn't, right? It's very confusing. Okay, so Jesus is the Emmanuel. He's the God with us, but he's not here. He's in heaven. And we don't understand how all these things are connected. The Emmanuel is the Trini- Trinitarian God who is both Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Spirit descended from the Son and unites us to them. And, and we are with him. His presence is with us if we are baptized, if we are in his church, if we are part of his body. He's with us all the time. That's what the Spirit does. It's this holy fire comes down out of heaven and remains on his people. And then what do they do? What do they do? From, they rise up and they begin to proclaim. Right? Do they get shotguns and they go around and start telling everyone that they're going to also be baptized in this fire or they're going to blow their head off? Right? Do they start, oh, we're going to now take away all their food. We're going we're to get these people to convert. What we're going to do is we're going to force them to do it. No. What, what happens? They stand up, and by the power of the Spirit that, that has come upon them, they proclaim the gospel, and, and, what, and, and they go to war. They go out and they slay 3,000, right? Tell me an army that can slay that many people that quickly. 11 guys. 11 guys go out and slay 3,000. I've read a lot of military history. That doesn't happen very often. That doesn't happen very often. And that's what they have, what has happened. They've been commissioned. They received all the power from heaven. They received this fire, and the fire immediately begins to spread because they go to war. The remainder of Acts two adds to the images with which we associate the first Pentecost. A leading picture is miraculous speaking in foreign tongues, which enabled people from various language groups to understand the message of the apostles. The flames of fire and the powerful word are by necessity connected to one another. A second is the bold and incisive preaching of Peter to a Jewish audience. The effect of the sermon is equally vivid. The listeners are cut to the heart. They're, repented, or they're instructed to repent and be baptized. So you see, they go out and start doing the Great Commission. And it's not gentle. Who, right? is, who would call being cut to the heart gentle? Well, maybe if we just contextualize a little more, right? Maybe if we just make it a little gentler. Maybe if we just make it a little softer. Well, how about we go out and stab a bunch of people in the heart with our words, right? Silence isn't violence. I'm, I'm actually with the, liber- I'm with the libs on this one. Speech is violent. I, Christians are like, oh, that's so dumb. Have you read Acts? He's speaking, and he's, he's cutting them to the heart. They're right. Words are dangerous. 
And that's why they want to silence people that oppose them. Our words ought to be dangerous. Our words ought to cause fear. Our words ought to cut people to the heart. And, and, and we've got to take this idolatrous niceness that we all bow down and worship and take it out behind the woodshed and shoot it in the head. We are not supposed to be nice. We are supposed to slay people in the spirit. We are supposed to stab them in the heart. With, with a knife? No. With the truth. With the truth. And even now you feel it, don't you? Even now when your spouse comes to you and they tell you, tell you something you don't want to hear but you need to, doesn't it cut you to the heart still? And do you ever think, man, that spirit is working in my spouse right now? No. <laughs> That's not usually how we respond. But hopefully after this, it's how we start to. It's how we start to think about it. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. The Holy Spirit does not produce timidity or cowardice. Fire doesn't ask for permission or wait for an invitation. Have you ever had a grease fire in a kitchen? Is it standing there saying, hey, invite me into, onto the counter so that I may spread? No, it spreads. And it's all you can do to stop it. And we act like the fire that comes down out of heaven is this thing that's knocking gently at the door waiting for you to let it in. It burns. It consumes. It will not be stopped. And that is the spirit that, has, that rests in your hearts. So stop being timid. Stop being afraid. Stop holding back. Stop looking for another way besides conflict to spread the good news. The Holy Spirit produces a love. right? It's a spirit of not of fear but of power and love and self-control. See, that's what Paul always does for us. Because some people are like, okay, it's a spirit not of fear, but of power. Yes, power. And, we, and, and, and what happens, right? We're suddenly a burning eye in the sky, looking around, wanting to dominate everything and everyone. No, it's a spirit not of fear, but of power. What kind of power? The kind of power that loves people, even its enemies, to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's the kind of power that, in which, under its influence, you can actually control yourself. And I know that that is a bit of a dangerous idea these days. But one can actually control themselves. One can actually not watch the porn. One can actually not drink too much. One can actually turn away from the sin. And we're like, man, you know, my therapist, you're here. Jesus is just, I keep stumbling. I just keep stumbling. I'm just, you know, I just don't know. I, I could read another book, maybe. Well, how about you recognize the fact that what you, you really don't want to give it up? You're trapped in this sin, and you trapped yourself there, and you're acting like this is a therapy session. The spirit that is on you is a, is a spirit of power, a spirit of love, and a spirit of self-control. And so what we need to do is feed the flame that's there inside of us. Feed it, right? If there's a fire inside of your heart, stop putting a wet blanket on it. Stop putting shovels of dirt on it. But what you need to do is put fuel on it. Now, here we go. We're so used to using Saul as a bad example. But now we're going to use Saul as a good example. Because Paul told Timothy, you know the scriptures. Your mother and your grandmother made sure of it. Okay, and the, and the spirit that's descended upon you, you know, he's, he's telling him throughout the epistle, you know 
who you are and what you've received. And you know the scriptures. So think of examples. And here is one for, for all of us. This is the spirit that's descended upon us. This is the kind of people we ought to be. Are you ready? 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 5 through 7. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Now there is a time to weep with those who, right? We all need to do a great deal of learning what it means to lament. But he's comforting those who weep by terrifying them with what? A spirit that everyone ought to be afraid of. A spirit that's going to overcome Satan's sin and death. A spirit that that God puts on someone because he wants them to accomplish a task. The comfort that they're going to receive, these weepers, is a man possessing the spirit of God, possessed by the spirit of God, who's going to go out and fight. Now, that is the exact opposite of the kind of Christianity that we've all been learning about all these decades, that we've all been whoring with all these decades. Where is this guy in our midst? Oh, they're we- why are you guys weeping? Oh, you're under siege. I have the Spirit of God, and anyone who doesn't get behind me and, and follow me, may your oxen also likewise be chopped into bits and spread out over all of Israel. No, we, you know, this person needs to, this person, they need to sit down and they need to think about how they're not acting like Jesus. Well, what did Jesus do when he received the Holy Spirit? Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 through chapter 4, verse 2. And when Jesus was baptized immediately, he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And then what happens then? Well, now he goes on this sparring match. And he's got a big giant sword called the Word of God. And he goes to war. Who do you think he is? I'm beside myself with who people think Jesus is. He receives the Spirit of God and goes to war. We have the Spirit of God, and we won't get out of the trench. And the people won't get out of the trench. Because maybe I'm not referring to you. Maybe you're like, what what does he want us to do now? Well, what I want you to do is, in the power of the Spirit, go out and start slaying the sins in your own hearts, in your own homes. There is a war. And there is an army that's conquering the world. Are you in the fight or are you not? Right? I, I, if, you, if you've ever watched Band of Brothers, you know that guy who's so, he's so terrified he pretends to be blind? And, and I, actually, I think he actually is blind. He goes blind. He's so terrified. And where is he? He's in the medical tent. And he just wants somebody to put a little napkin on his head, you know, get, get a wet cloth and just take care of me and give me an aspirin. And that's what so many Christians are doing these days. Well, we're surrounded. Well, you're the airborne, so that's your job. We're surrounded on every side. Why? Because God descended out of heaven in the middle of this place, and he says, okay, now go forth and take it over. And we're like, well, give me the medical tent. Give me an aspirin. 
this is hardcore stuff here. I, I, these people are so not nice. They're not. It's not nice. Jesus receives the Spirit of God, and he's like, where, where do I go now? I'm going to go in the wilderness. I'm going to not eat. I'm not going to drink. So there's a physical element to everything he's doing. It's not just the spiritual reality. And he's going to fight the one being on the earth that nobody else can, can conquer. And what does he do? He wins. And what does he win with? The Word of God. On Pentecost, what do they win with? The Word of God. Why are we embarrassed of it? Why do we try to, well, there's no slavery in it. Well, you know, that was a different time, and Paul talked that way to wives. Because, mm. We're embarrassed by the word of God. And, and the people who have the spirit of God use it as their primary means of fighting. And what they're fighting is Satan, sin, and death. Not people they dislike. Not people that have funny doctrines. They fight Satan, sin, and death. And they slay, and they conquer, and they purify because it's a fire that we've received that's burning and spreading and is meant to. And we're either lighting up the flamethrower or we're hiding under the bed. Right? I, I'm, I'm not even going to use the example anymore of put the lamp on the table. Get the flamethrower out and light it up. Now, if you, now, flamethrowers are amazing. When I worked at the city of Mercer Island, you weren't allowed to use chemicals to get rid of weeds. They gave 19- and 20-year-olds flamethrowers because they're super wise and you literally wear propane on your back with a flamethrower and you go around and you burn weeds with it and I remember we, we were famous for two things one I was able from 20 feet to melt a plastic cone which then we had to evacuate the entire shop because of the chemical smell in the air and they were worried about people's lungs collapsing and another time my friend and I are walking down this trail and, and we're idiots and, and he's blowing the fire from pretty far because he doesn't want to walk down there and knocks the leaves into the air. And it comes to rest on this old pile of wood chips that are there. And you could see the flames on, Mer- the flames on Mercer Island. You could see from the U District. Okay? Now, I understand that a little bit of what I'm doing here is putting flamethrowers in the hands of people who aren't used to using them. So don't melt cones. And please, don't start a fire in Everett that I can see from my house in Bothell. Okay, don't just burn indiscriminately. But we have got to wake up to who it is that we're serving and what he expects of us personally and of our households and of our church and of our communities. Because sending the, the spirit on Saul was a declaration of war. Sending the spirit upon the Lord Jesus Christ was a declaration of war. Sending the spirit to descend upon you is a declaration of war against those, all the unbelief in your own heart, all the unbelief in your family, all the unbelief in your neighborhood, and all the unbelief in your nation. It's a declaration of war. You didn't declare it. He declared it, and you're his servant. And we, what we all want to do is just go to heaven, right? We just want to push the penthouse button and get me out of this hellhole that's burning. It's so hot. <laughs> and there the faithful Christians are with their flamethrowers cranking that baby up. And let's burn it. Let's do it. One of my favorite quotes from A.W. Tozer is this. This is is what we have to consider. And and when you're talking to people, when you're evangelizing, we've got to think think this way. We've got to count the cost. Because we tend to offer something that, that 
doesn't seem like a serious thing because we don't take it seriously enough. But listen to this. Are you sure that you want to be possessed by a spirit who, while he is pure and gentle and wise and loving, will yet insist upon being the Lord of your life? Are you sure you want your personality to be taken over by one who will require obedience to the written word? Who will not tolerate any of the self-sins in your life, self-love, self-indulgence? Who will not permit you to strut or boast or show off? Who will, who will take the direction of your life away from you and will reserve the sovereign right to test you and discipline you? Who will strip away from you many loved objects which secretly harm your soul? Now go door to door and tell them that. (laughs) I'm inviting you now to be completely and utterly consumed by a sovereign power that will make you live forever and will make you go through a lot of pain and difficulty and sorrow, but will perfect you. And and now that he's descended, when he returns, you will go with him. And you, and you will go where there are no tears and no pain and no death. And you will realize that his process has perfected you. You've been hammered into something else that's glorious and golden and beautiful and will last forever. Second Timothy 1.6, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is on you. Fan it into flame. Let the wind of heaven Right? The voice of God. Fan it. Let that blow on it. Get, a, get books of theology. Get fellowship. Get, repent, get these, object, these logs and toss them on the fire. Stoke it. Stop putting a blanket on it. Stop putting shovels of, of dirt sin on it. Right? That's Adam. Adam is dirt. And we're in Adam, we're just tossing more and more dirt with our sins on this fire. And because it's, it's just getting a little out of control for me. I want to control these things. And so what we're going to do is we're going to just calm this down a little. And I think what all of us need to repent of is that. We don't want to let him have his way. We don't want him to burn away things that we don't want to let go of. We want to have this table and the table of demons. We want the ring of power. <laughs> and what he wants is to burn all that up. Burn all that up. So what you need to do is add fuel, add fuel, add fuel, add fuel. Now, what is the, what is the church supposed to look like? Now, this is a verse that for many years I assumed was simply about my wife, Anne Marie. But I've recently realized that in the book of the Song of Solomon, it's a typological story as well about Christ and his bride. So this isn't just talking about my wife. But Song of Solomon 6.10 describes what the church is supposed to look like. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? Now, on Pentecost, when all those unbelievers were looking at those 11, that's what they saw. Something burning as bright as the sun. Something that looked as terrifying as an army and banners. And we don't really know, right? We don't really understand what that looked like. But imagine 10,000 soldiers coming down out of the hill in perfect formation with their weapons and their banners, flapping in the wind, the wind of judgment. (laughs) And that is what the church is supposed to look like. 
Solomon's wife burns bright. She's a source of light and wisdom. She dazzles and smolders. Think about what the sun is. It's a burning ball of fire. And, and when you behold it, it looks like an army in full bloom that's about to do some slaughtering. And, and the bride of Solomon in this case is, is, is a foretaste of what the church is going to look like. First Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the spirit. Why are we trying to dampen down this bright sun that's burning in this? Why are we trying, oh no, this is a little intimidating, all these banners. We shouldn't, right? we shouldn't be so intimidating and ferocious. The message is just a little too on the nose. <laughs> Put the banners away, guys. What are you doing with the swords? We quenched this. First Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the spirit. Don't, don't dampen this. When we, when we gather to sing, when we gather to pray, when we gather to worship, when, when, when we're preaching and teaching, when we're repenting of our sins and loving our spouses and raising our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, when we're submitting ourselves to the Lord God, when we are a people who are holy, we are as dazzling as the sun, as terrifying as an army under banners. And this fire that is descended in Hebrews 12 says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, is the fire that has descended upon you, are you putting it out as it's trying to devour all the impurities in your life? Or are you being consumed by it? Are you the martyr on the stake burning up so that all that remains is what's good and beautiful in the sight of the Lord God? He's come, and he's descended upon you. And, and, and he's not just a lighter that you can turn on when you want. It's a fire, and you've got to either smother it, or it will consume everything that displeases him. In all-consuming fire, the grace that descends from heaven by the Spirit is a wealth of things, calling and rebirth, and faith, and repentance, and justification, and forgiveness of sins, and adoption as children, and deliverance from the law of Moses, and spiritual freedom, and faith, and hope, and love, and peace, and joy, and gladness, and comfort, and sanctification, and preservation, and endurance, and glorification. This is, these are the logs piled up so that this fire burns, and burns, and burns, and what we're doing is like, uh, it's, too, it's too hot. It's too out of control. I'm too uncomfortable. I like this too much. Take these logs off. Put a blanket on it so it smolders. It doesn't go out, right? It doesn't go out, but it doesn't burn quite so hot. If the people of God only knew who they were, that's what I find myself increasingly doing. You know, it's one thing to go out and try to convince people to come and join, join the fire. Hey, let me throw you as a log on this heaping, burning pile. Everyone's like, what? But trying to convince people that they are a terrifying and consuming fire. <laughs> like, okay, and the, if, if you've never read Nietzsche, do it. One of the reasons I like reading Nietzsche, honestly, I hope I said the name right. Laura looks very upset. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He hates the church, and when he describes the church, I was like, I wish the church was like what he describes. And that's why I like reading it, because he gets it. He gets what we're, why we're terrifying, and he gets why he said we should be silenced, and why should we be stopped, and why our, 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 our way of life should be ended. 
And it's very refreshing to me because the people who are the people of God rarely understand it even as well as he does. Now, here's an example of what I mean. MSNBC. I'm quoting MSNBC. I want this recorded. I am quoting MSNBC. Because they get who you are, and you don't. This is their tweet on June 2nd. This is what they said. It's becoming increasingly clear that the United States is under siege by Christian fundamentalism and traditionalists. Now, we do say yay. Amen! But is that how you consider it? No, we're looking around, we're like, well, we're a red island in a blue state. We think we're surrounded. So we act in unbelief, and we act in indecency, and we're so focused on ourselves that we don't know who we are. And MSNBC says, well, you know, the problem in this country, the problem in this country is that we're surrounded by traditionalist Christians. That's who you, that's who they consider. What's wrong, what's wrong with your understanding of who you are where you think it's the opposite? You are as bright as the sun because you are the people of God, because the sun of righteousness has descended upon you and dwells in your hearts. And you're terrifying. You're terrifying to them because you're like an army under banners. If you just believed it, if you just believed who you really were, what would we accomplish in our own, in our own hearts, in our own homes, in our own communities? Hear the Lord Jesus. Revelation three fifteen through 16. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. We have the flame of heaven. that It's descended upon us. We are this glorious and beautiful bride that looks as terrifying as an army under banners. We are spreading. We are got them on the run. We are the ones who they feel surrounded by, who they feel threatened by. Fan the flames. Get the iconoclasm going, okay? Take the idols, take the images that you worship, the self and all of its, all of its whorish following, all those things in yourself that ought to go, and throw it on the fire, and, and, and read the word of God, and fellowship with Christians, and repent of your sins, and worship, and sing, and read, and be who you are. That's what Pentecost is about. It's who we've become because of the Lord Jesus. And who we have become is a consuming fire, a conquering army, something that will not be stopped. And we're either engaged in that or we're not. We're either burning hot or we're cold or we're lukewarm. Fan the flames. Throw everything that (laughs) that displeases God onto the fire and feed it with the word of God, feed it with the body of Christ, feed it with all those things that it, that, it, that it feeds on. And stop hiding. And stop pretending you're something else. Stop wondering what's going on. Stop living in fear. You are the people of God, and, and his fire rests upon you. 
and may it consume everything in you that displeases him, and may you be a firestorm in this world, and amen. Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you for your spirit, Lord. I pray that we would go from here and that we would fan the flames that you've set upon us, that we would burn with zeal, that we would, uh, that our sin and our iniquity would be consumed, that self would be consumed, that we would martyr ourselves, Lord God, that we would be remade in the image of your son, that we would engage in this process, that we would believe the promises, that we would stand firm, that we would proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus, of which we know so well. We thank you and praise you in your son's name, and amen.